you. Uh, but my name's Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. I'm really glad to see you all. And at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so what that means is that wherever you are, whatever you're going through, we think the most important thing for you to hear is God's grace in Jesus. And so that's what RUF's all about. And this semester, we've been going through a series in the Old Testament book of the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms were kind of like the, the songs that we've been singing together tonight. Uh, they were songs that the people of God sang throughout the history of the church. Um, they're songs that were meant to shape them, to shape how they were supposed to relate to God, to shape how they were supposed to relate to the world around them. And we've been saying that the Psalms meet us where we are, and they take us where we need to go. Uh, and tonight, we're going to be looking at Psalm 88, uh, which is going to be titled, A Song About Despair which is perfect for the day before Valentine's Day. Sorry, I didn't really think about that one, but here we are. Um, so I, uh, I watched the Grammys a couple weeks ago. Did anybody watch? Yeah? Okay, one person. Right on. Cool. This one's... <laughs> Glad we got one person who's culturally relevant here. Um, but besides... So let me just catch you up on what happened. Uh, Billie Eilish won absolutely everything, um, which was kind of expected. I Don't clap for that. Um, <laughs> But then there was, there was one moment that stood out, actually, in watching the Grammys. Uh, and I think it was when, when Demi Lovato sang. Uh, and she was singing for the first time publicly since June of 2018. And Demi Lovato, if you're not familiar with her, she was a, a big Disney star. I'm sure some of you might have seen her in that. Um, she's had a very successful musical career. She came out with a whole lot of albums. But in, uh, in June 2018... Um, it was revealed that she has had this on-again, off-again struggle with addiction, um, depression, and all sorts of other mental health issues. And she had been sober for six years up to 2018, and then she overdosed. Uh, and it was so bad, she was rushed to the hospital and revived. Ultimately, she survived, but she kind of was off the radar for about a year and a half after that. And then, so when she took to, the, took to the stage to sing this song um, that she sang at the Grammys, it was a really big deal. The song was called Anyone. Uh, and it was a very, like, kind of shocking song at the Grammys. I, I don't know if you've ever watched the Grammys, but it's always, like, kind of music. The music industry is, like, really high on itself every time. They're like, music is what brings us together. Like, we can overcome anything. And then she gets up on the stage and sings this song. Starts off like this. Says, I tried to talk to my piano. I tried to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confided into alcohol. I tried and tried and tried some more, told secrets till my voice was sore, tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. And she goes on to say, I feel stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me. I feel stupid when I pray. So why am I praying anyways if nobody's listening? A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing. She's saying this at the Grammys. I feel stupid when I sing. And then the chorus, uh, it's even more desperate. She says again and again, anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? Send me anyone. And it seems like the resounding answer is at the end of the song. The final words of the song are, nobody's listening. Nobody's listening to me. What a downer. One journalist described the song this way. He says, it's easy to believe that someone near rock bottom created it. The lyrics are a desperate tumble, a litany of failed attempts at finding relief. And this is a song that's about despair. 
It's a song about the deep experience of sadness that a lot of us may be familiar with. So much like this song by Lovato, uh, this psalm that we're going to be looking at tonight is also a desperate tumble, a litany of failed attempts at finding relief. But unlike this song, it's, it's, actually, it's in the Bible, which is kind of weird. We don't expect the Bible to talk this way. Many psalms, we've actually looked at a couple already that detail pain. Uh, they, they cry out for relief. Um, they struggle. But usually most of them end in this place of confidence in God. They end in this place of like, God is going to rescue me. I know it's going to be okay. But this one is utterly unique in that it doesn't end that way. It starts with sadness and it ends with sadness. The whole thing is sad all the way throughout. It also wrestles with feelings of abandonment. And then the final words are this. It says, my companions have become darkness. And like, what a downer. So what do we do with this? What do we do with a sad song that just gets sadder? I think the real question is, what do we do with the sadness that's in our own lives? How do we deal with it? And I don't know where you're at today, um, where you are on the spectrum of belief to unbelief. Some of us will have been Christians for a long time. A lot of us might just be considering Christianity for the first time. But I think we can all relate to these feelings of despair, these feelings of hopelessness every now and again. And a lot of us are confused, and we, we don't really know what to do with it. And out of, this, out of this confusion, we're tempted to deny these feelings. When we feel these uncomfortable things, we just don't want to talk about it. And we can do this in a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of us, when we start to feel this sort of despair welling up inside of us, we just silence it. It's like, I don't want to deal with that right now. I don't want to talk about that. And if I don't talk about it, then it just goes away. So we just like grit our teeth and just get through it. Others of us decide to cover this sort of despair. We, we might do it covering it in platitudes, right? Whether it's Christian or not. Uh, we, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, what if it doesn't? Ever thought about that? I'm sure there are things in, in each of your stories that you're not exactly thankful that they happened. I'm sure there are times in your life where it didn't really feel like this was making you stronger. It just felt terrible. Or then if we're Christians, sometimes we're quick to jump to this, you know, affirmation that God is good when we're in the midst of struggling. And that's true. God is good. But we get there way too quick. We get there without wrestling with the pain that we actually feel. We numb the pain that's inside us. We might do this with Netflix, food, or, or even a lack thereof. Might do this, this with alcohol or various forms of addiction. Whatever it is that can numb this sense of despair that we have inside of us. And this psalm meets us in this place, and it shows us how to deal with God. So as we look at this psalm, we're going to be seeing three things. So if you're a note taker, this will be kind of our three points here. First, a loud despair. Second, a subtle hope. And third, a friend in the darkness. So a loud despair, a subtle hope, and a friend in the darkness. So Psalm 88, I'm going to read that for us. I'll pray and then we can get started. Starting in verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, 
and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Did the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, um, this is your word. And oftentimes your word confuses us. Oftentimes your word confounds us. Oftentimes your word makes us uncomfortable. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean into those feelings as we look at Psalm 88 together. I pray that you would open our eyes and that you would help us to see Jesus in this. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first off, we see here a loud despair. If you would look with me back to verses 1 and 2. The psalm starts off a lot like every other psalm. It says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. We see that this is like an earnest prayer in times of need. The psalm is, is the writer talking to God about a situation that's going on in his life. And what's this situation? We see it in verse 3. It says, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. So he feels like his life is filled to the brim with trouble. So much so that his life draws near to Sheol. And Sheol is a word used in the Old Testament that oftentimes is associated with death or with the grave. You also see later in this passage, it talks about Abaddon. Those are two words that are kind of used uh, to refer to a place where God isn't. A place where God isn't. And that's what the writer says his life feels like right now. He says his life draws near to death. And then he says in in verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. And this language of the pit is pretty significant because in the Psalms elsewhere, it actually talks about the Lord being the one who rescues people from the pit. Uh, Psalm 103 talks about rescuing my life from the pit. In Jonah 2, we see Jonah talking about being rescued from the pit. But here we see, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. This is a reversal of how things normally work in the Psalms. He's saying it it doesn't feel like God is being faithful to him. He's going down to the pit. But not only does he, he feel like he's not experiencing the benefits of relationship with God, he doesn't feel like God's being faithful to him. He points the finger at God for it. You see a shift that happens in verse 6. It says, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all of your waves. And this is, like, this is pretty vivid imagery here. Like vivid imagery directed at God. God is the one who put him in the pit. God is the one who presses down on him with his wrath and with his anger. 
And he says, you overwhelm me with all of your waves. The, the picture here is, is if you're, you're kind of standing on the ocean shore and these 12-foot waves keep coming down on top of you. And they have no regard for you. They don't care about you at all. That's what this person is saying relationship with God feels like right now. Have you ever felt like that? Has your relationship with the Lord ever felt that way? I'd ask, more importantly, have you ever felt free to say that to someone? What would it feel like for you to say to the most trusted spiritual advisor in your life, I, my life is terrible right now. God's wrath, it, it just feels like that God has no kindness for me. If you're anything like me, that makes you deeply uncomfortable to say something like that, Right? I look at this passage and I'm like, well, I mean, come on, man. Like, that's bad theology. Like, clearly God cares about you. Like, suck it up, man. It's going to be okay. But that's not what happens in this passage. It just keeps going. It just keeps getting worse. And we see in verse 8 that this despair is also felt relationally. It says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. He's saying that the very people that are supposed to bring comfort in his life are people who feel distant to him, are people who don't even want to look at him. And more than that, he, he is saying that it's God's fault. And then he goes on in verses 10 to 14 to ask a whole bunch of questions of God. He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's asking a lot of questions here, but basically what he is saying is, how in the world are you going to be faithful to me when I am feeling like death? Like, what are you doing, God? Like, I am dying. Do you not care? And then finally, the psalm ends in verse 18. It says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This psalm ends in a place of utter despair. The psalm ends in a place where it's not, the, the Lord's presence doesn't even bring comfort. Nothing brings comfort. So how does all of this hit you, right? It's pretty sad. Doesn't, there's, there really doesn't seem to be much hope offered anywhere. And what do we do with the fact that this is in the Bible? Uh, some of us might want to, might, when we're reading this, we might want to tell this guy, like, you need to calm down. Like, it's not that serious. God hasn't abandoned you. I know things are going pretty poorly for you right now, but it's not that bad. But I think the fact that this is in the Bible tells us something different. It tells us that sometimes faithful Christian people will feel like this. Sometimes people will feel this way. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean you're doing anything wrong. The fact that this is in the Bible, and it actually doesn't change from feeling sad to feeling great all of a sudden, it should affirm that this is something that a normal Christian person can and does experience. And many of you know that. Many of you know that personally. But some of us here, we might be afraid to talk to God like this. This sort of directness, this sort of asking questions. I mean, you might be thinking to yourself, well, like, the first thing that I was taught in church growing up is that I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and so how in the world could I talk to God like this? Like, what gives me the right to point the finger and to say, what are you doing, God? And when I feel like this, you know, it's, it's probably my fault anyways. It's like, why would God care? 
And if that's you, I, I think you're correct. I mean, the Bible does say that we are sinners. The Bible tells us that every thought of our heart is evil continually. That's pretty bleak. But that's actually not all that the Bible says about sin. The Bible says that we are both sinners and that we're sinned against. That we're both the villain and the victim at the same time. We live in a world of sinners. We, live, we were raised by people who sin. We live in a world where, where our friends, our family, and the institutions that we find ourselves involved in are all affected by sin. So in a way, when we experience despair, we shouldn't be that surprised. Because in a lot of ways, despair is a godly response to the world around us. It's a response to the world that we see that is not the way that it's supposed to be. And I think there's, there's other good news here. Jesus, the perfect man, felt despair. He felt so much despair that he cried tears of blood. The prophet Isaiah says this about Jesus. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So if the perfect man experienced despair, why do we think that we can't? Maybe you're here and you're feeling this tonight. You're feeling this sense of despair. You're feeling this sense of hopelessness in this psalm. And if that's you, I would encourage you to make this prayer your own. This is for you. This is for the people of God to voice how we're feeling before God. It's for us to relate to him. But more than that, I would encourage you, please feel free to talk to us. I would love to talk to you about this. Jason would love to talk to you about this. Reach out, talk to someone. We want RUF to be a safe place where if you're feeling this sort of thing, you can talk to each other. So we see a loud despair. but We also see a subtle hope. If you would look back with me to verse 1. Kind of the only really hopeful thing in this passage is uh, the first line. It says, O Lord, God of my salvation. This is where the prayer of despair begins. It begins with an identification of God as the one who saves. And it starts with God as the one who saves and it ends in utter darkness. But throughout the psalm, we see this kind of stubborn confidence put forward. In verse 1, it says, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 9, it says, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. In verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry out to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. You see, even though this psalm is full of despair, it's still a prayer. Even though there's a lot of accusation, even though there's a lot of negative emotion, the, the, the psalmist is still dealing with God. And when we make this our own prayer, we're still dealing with God. So uh, I don't know about you, um, but I tend to be pretty conflict averse. So the sort of thing uh, like this, like naming all of these things before God makes me really insecure and anxious. Um, if you're an Enneagram person, I'm an Enneagram 9, which means I really like peace and I don't like conflict. So there's that. Um, but to give a lighthearted example of this tendency in my life, uh, I once, I told someone this story earlier this week, but I feel like I need to share this with everybody. I once allowed my neighbor to call me by the wrong name for three and a half years. Not kidding. 
Yeah. So when when uh, when Molly, my wife, and I moved to St. Louis, we uh, we introduced ourselves to our neighbors. I was really excited to get to meet some neighbors, and uh, we went up, introduced ourselves. Her name was Jennifer. Uh, turns out she had a daughter who was named Molly. So immediately we knew that she was not going to forget Molly's name. And I introduced myself, and she called us Molly and Thomas for a couple weeks. But then slowly after that, she was like, she started saying hey to Molly and not me. Like I could tell she didn't really know. And then eventually she started calling me hubby, which is a little weird. So like I'd walk by and she'd just be like, oh, hey, Molly. Hey, hubby. I was like, I'm like, I don't know if we're there yet. That's a little bit, that's a little much. Uh, But then after a while, she stopped calling me hubby. And I, I was walking home one day from class, got to my front door and she said, oh, hey, David, how are you? And I was like... Hello, I'm, I'm doing doing well. How are you, Jennifer? <laughs> and so I was David. I was David for a little bit. But then a couple weeks later, she started calling me Dave. I was like, wait, hold on. That's David to you, ma'am. <laughs> and she calls me Dave for three and a half years. And I just let it happen. And even worse than that, about a month before we moved, like, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with me just saying, hey, by the way, my name's Thomas. Like, she introduces me to her son. She introduced me and Molly to her son. And Molly's like, hey, I'm Molly. And, you know, introduce yourself. And then I just stuck my hand out. And I was like, I mean, I got to make a decision here. Like, <laughs> so I was just silent. And then she said, oh, this is Dave. And I was like, hi, yeah, nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. And so for three years, I let this happen. Why did I let this happen? Well, one, because I'm pretty conflict-averse, for sure. But also it's because this neighbor and I didn't have a particularly close relationship. It didn't really matter that much. If she needed me to be Dave, that's okay. But imagine if Molly started calling me Dave one day. Like if Molly forgot my name. How long do you think it would be before I would correct her? I'd correct her immediately, and I would probably see if she needs to go to the doctor or something, because that's not normal. I would feel missed if my wife started calling me by the wrong name, and I would say something to her about it. You see, the subtle hope of this psalm is that God is the type of God who wants us to name when we feel missed by him. He wants us to name it. And though this psalm is full of despair and even accusations towards God, it's all possible because of how God cares for us. God's not like a neighbor who forgets our name. Our relationship with God is a lot more like a marriage. It's intimate. And we cannot pray like this unless we know for certain that God cares for us. And we're invited to pray like this because he does. So what does this mean for us? I think this means for us that even in our deepest despair, God wants us to deal with him. He wants us to pray even when we're feeling uncomfortable things. And even when those things are directed at him. God is not offended by our emotions. He's not offended when we feel a mess. He actually wants us to bring that to him. Some of you may be uh, may have been raised in homes where if you were kind of experiencing a temper tantrum or something, you, you were sent to your room, right? Like, go to your room, and when you're making sense, come out and talk to me. God is not like that. He doesn't care if we're making sense. He just wants us to talk to him. But not only that, God is a lot kinder than we are. He's a lot more kind and friendly. The very fact that this psalm is is a one-way dialogue proves that. I mean, can you imagine a time where someone says something that's like even a little bit wrong about you, like how eager you are to correct it? 
mean, like, if you come back through this psalm, there are so many things that, I mean, technically speaking, are theologically incorrect. Like, there are a lot of things said about God that he does not deserve. But they're there. And God doesn't respond in anger. He listens. He doesn't need us to pretend to be anywhere other than where we are. That's good news. We don't have to clean ourselves up. If we're feeling angry, we can bring that before God. If we're feeling sad, we can bring that before God. If we're feeling happy, we can bring that before him. He just wants us to come before him. So we have a subtle hope here. But third and finally, we have a friend in the darkness. And the psalm ends with these words, uh, my companions have become darkness, or some translations say my only friend is darkness. Uh, The message says it this way. It says, you made lover and friend alike dump me. The only friend I have left is darkness. And this last line here about companions being darkness, in, in the original language, it's just two words. Like, it's very cut and dry. It just says, companions, darkness. Like, there's no room for hope in that. The final word of this psalm gives voice to our feelings of despair. But ultimately, we can, we can hope knowing that in the ultimate sense, this is not true. In the ultimate sense, we will never know a time when our only friend is darkness. In fact, we do have a friend in the darkness. I recently heard a story uh, about Father Richard Hinks, who is a Catholic priest from Germany during uh, the First and Second World Wars. And Father Richard was known for uh, a lot of things. He was very accomplished. He was kind of a rising star in the Catholic Church at that time. He was a really great preacher, a uh, really great teacher. Um, but he kind of had a little bit of a, a problem, which was that uh, he was a priest in Nazi Germany, and he couldn't help but denouncing everything that Nazi Germany did. He was constantly talking about the moral failure of the Nazi party. He was calling them out for their murder of the disabled. He was constantly getting himself in trouble. And then unsurprisingly, in 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo, and he was sent to Dachau concentration camp. Uh, And Dachau concentration camp was the first concentration camp in Germany, Uh, And it was a really dark place. And there was actually a a saying that parents taught to their children in Germany. And it said, dear God, make me silent that I may not come to Dachau. This is something that people taught their kids. Like this place is horrifying. And it housed about 30,000 people. So he went there in 1943. And in the beginning of his second year at Dachau, there was an outbreak of typhoid fever. Uh, And this was due to the fact that there was a whole lot of uh, poor sanitation, um, not much cleanliness, and so it just spread like wildfire in a camp of 30,000 people. And at sometimes, 200 people would die from typhoid a day in this camp. And the way that the, uh, the Nazi officers would deal with it is they would identify the cell blocks where people had typhoid, and they would just close the door and lock them in. And they would just leave them there. And when Father Richard saw this, he knew that he had to do something. There was a a particularly terrible um, cell block. It was block 17. And he decided that he was going to go in there with them, that he was going to get locked in there with them, even though he didn't have typhoid. So for eight weeks, he went into block 17, and he was serving them. He was bringing them food and water. It's required removing dead bodies cleaning up vomit and fecal matter. But not only that, he he was preaching the gospel to them. 
and he was sitting with them, and he was praying with them. And he earned a nickname as the secret preacher of Block 17 for the ways that he faithfully cared for these people. But then finally, predictably, after about eight weeks of being there, he caught typhoid, and he died on February 22, 1945. You see, Father Richard willingly entered into the certain death and absolute darkness of Block 17, and he knew that the second that he stepped in, he had sealed his fate. There was no way he was going to be coming out. But he went anyways, and he locked himself in. He went in so that these men would know that they had a friend in the darkness, so that these condemned and dying men knew that they were not going to die alone. We have a friend like this. This and more is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus entered into this sin-sick world, and he locked the door behind him. He experienced every bit of despair detailed in this psalm. Jesus' soul was full of troubles. He felt the nearness of death. He actually knew what it was like for God to turn his face away from him. On the cross, God the Father turned his face away from Jesus. It was the first time that Jesus and God the Father had not enjoyed this intimate relationship. Jesus was actually put into the depths of the pit. He was treated as if he was a wicked person, even though he was perfect. The wrath of God descended on him fully on the cross. He was shunned by his companions. He cried out to God on the cross and was not answered. In his death on the cross, Jesus experienced what it's like for darkness to be his only friend. Though we are invited to pray this prayer, Jesus actually knew what it felt like for darkness to be his only friend. And why in the world would he do something like this? He did this for us. See, Jesus experienced the full force of God's wrath on the cross so that we could experience the full force of God's pleasure, so that we could know him and have intimate relationship with him. Jesus experienced darkness as his only friend so that we could know for certain that we were never alone in darkness. And in our experience of despair, we're not alone. He tasted death for us. Jesus tasted death, and he died. And not only that, he, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead so that we can know for sure that darkness is not the final word. So even though this psalm ends in darkness, if you're a Christian, you can know that there is a resurrection that is coming. And that's our hope. Let's pray.